When I was growing up in eastern Iowa, I had a best friend. His name was Jeff, and he lived just down the road from me. Now, we lived on a country block, which meant that we were the only two kids on this block. And we were really good friends from about the age of three because we didn't have any other options other than one another. And so we spent a lot of time together. Now, Jeff, he was the cool kid on the block, which, remember, only consisted of him and me. He was really the trendsetter, though. Whatever Jeff did or Jeff had, I wanted. And so we grew up, and my poor parents ran into this issue over and over. They would buy, some, they would buy me something. Jeff would get something like it but different. And so I would want what he had and not what I had received. It started with footballs and basketballs and baseball gloves, and it would have saved my parents a lot of money if they would have just coordinated their gift-giving with Jeff's parents, but no one really seemed to figure it out. When video games started coming out, though, that was when it got really expensive. In third grade, I got a Sega Saturn. Jeff got a PlayStation. Within six months, I had traded my Sega in for a PlayStation. Same thing happened when the PlayStation 2 came out. I bought a PlayStation 2, Jeff bought an Xbox. Six months later, I had traded in the PlayStation 2 for an Xbox. You see, I was never content with anything that I had, but everything Jeff had, I coveted for a multitude of reasons. Now, this is a, a funny and a childish story to illustrate covetousness, but we have all seen this same thing play out in the lives of adults around us. Men and women who are discontent with their lives, with their marriages, with their careers, they become riddled with covetousness and, or, and ultimately make horrible, rash, life-changing decisions that have life-destroying consequences. Friends, at the heart, covetousness is discontentment with what the Lord has provided and a desire for that which the Lord has not given. At the root, covetousness is questioning God's goodness and God's provision for you. Let me repeat that one more time. At the root, covetousness is questioning God's goodness and God's provision for you. Now, think back with me on the last year. Did you find yourself discontent? Perhaps you were discontent with your circumstances, wishing that things would go back to normal. Perhaps you coveted the power to change the way things were being handled or are being handled currently. Perhaps you coveted the lifestyle of the rich and the famous who were able to quarantine on private islands with friends and family. As Christians, we know the goodness and the sovereignty of God. We know that all things work together for His glory. We know the great work of salvation that He has accomplished, and yet, if you are like me... This is often not good enough. We want something more. Christian, how do we fight this sinful inclination when it arises? And as we confess, it's a sinful inclination that we all have. In our psalm this morning, Asaph knows the truth of God's goodness, but Asaph is unable to rest content in that goodness, struggling with envy and covetousness. So look with me at, at verse 1, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. To put this more simply, God is good to his children. This verse focuses on the faithful Israelite, namely those who are pure in heart. 
Now, this does not mean perfect, but those who are genuine followers of Yahweh, the true God. And how could anyone object to this? Think of all God's benefits to the nation of Israel, things that Asaph had heard of and seen with his own eyes. God created Israel from one man to be a blessed nation that would bless all nations. God set them apart as his chosen people. He redeemed them from the mightiest nation on earth, and God brought them through the wilderness, cleared a land out that was flowing with milk and honey, and he planted them in that land. God provided a sacrificial system so that his presence could continue to dwell in their midst. And if Israel obeyed, the Lord promised them peace, provision, and length of life. Surely God is good to Israel. And Christians, think about how good God has been to you, to us. He redeemed Israel from Egypt and provided them with a sacrificial system. But Christians, God has redeemed us from our own sin and from the power of death. He has actually forgiven our sins through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, and God has lavished upon us the privilege of being his children. How good has God been to us? And yet, how often are these things just not good enough? Like us, Asaph knows this struggle. God's goodness and God's provision did not seem to be all that good to Asaph. And look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For when I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is discontent. He's stumbling, he's slipping because of his meditation on the prosperity of the wicked. Now I want to make two brief observations. First, Let's not overlook how precarious Asaph's situation is here. Asaph isn't struggling with whether to paint his bedroom off-white or eggshell. A storm is raging in Asaph's soul, and he paints his position as having unsure footing on a treacherous path. He is navigating slippery and unsure stones. In short, Asaph is in a very dangerous place. To stumble or to slip in this context would have been to forsake the faith. It would have been to walk away from the Lord and to relinquish all of his benefits for the lifestyle of unbelievers. This was the trajectory of Asaph's covetousness. And this, in fact, is the trajectory of every sin that we struggle with. Every temptation that we face calls God's word and our commitment to him into question. It asks us, will you trust God and find satisfaction in him? Or will you seek to gratify the flesh? For Asaph, harboring covetousness in his heart put him in a very precarious position. And likewise, Christian sin, particularly covetousness as it is in our heart, puts us in a precarious position likewise. Now, the second thing I want to highlight is Asaph's humility and Asaph's honesty. Can we just be thankful for a minute? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I were to ask everyone in this room who has struggled with covetousness, covetousness to raise their hand, I would guess we all would have our hands in the air. 
And here we have a, a brother who is struggling with this sin. And Asaph does not try to hide it. He does not posture. He does not try to minimize it. Nor does he try to virtue signal his way out of it. But with humility and honesty, Asaph confesses his sin to the Lord. And he expresses how it is that the Lord brought him through deliverance for the good of the Lord's people. Friends, this is a model for us as we face similar things. Humility and honesty are the only way forward as we struggle with sin. If we minimize or try to hide from our sins or try to hide our sins from God, we will be found out and there will be no deliverance. But if we seek to, to be honest, to be humble, to confess our sins to the Lord and to express in the midst of God's people how it is that the Lord has brought us to deliverance, friends, we can count on change. God is not mocked. Nothing can be hidden from his gaze. And friends, take courage. There is no temptation that is not common to man. In this way, Asaph is offering himself as an example of the struggle to know and trust God for help and how it is that deliverance can be found. Now, how did this discontentment arise for Asaph? Look with me at, at verses 3 through 12. Asaph writes, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. So Asaph sees the health, wealth, and prosperity of the wicked. Now, this whole thing, I think, can be summed up by what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Simply put, Asaph is beholding the allures of the world. And what does Asaph find? Asaph finds that he's growing envious. Covetousness is beginning to take hold and grow in his heart. Now, in this context, the wicked, simply put, are unbelievers, those who are outside of the faith. So Asaph is jealous of those who are not worshipers of the true God. Now, as a quick aside, Asaph is specifically focused on the wicked. But brothers and sisters, are we not prone to envy one another also? Have you ever been jealous of another Christian? Have you ever envied the career success, the financial stability, or the opportunities of a brother or sister in Christ? Have you ever envied the no another body type of a Christian or, or a more spiritually mature spouse or another couple's obedient and successful children? Though this psalm focuses on being envious of unbelievers, often we can be jealous of one another. Covetousness comes in many shapes and sizes, but it is always the same in that it arises from a sinful heart and directly attacks our conception of God. Though our text focuses on envying the unbelieving, the broader issue here is envy itself as it crops up in our own hearts. 
Now, Asaph is jealous of the wicked. You see, Asaph was a, a leader of worship in the midst of the temple, and Asaph had fought, sought to follow the Lord. He had sought to keep his heart clean, but it seems to him that all of his efforts have simply resulted in more problem, more struggle, more difficulty. All the while, Asaph beholds the wicked as they prosper, prosper, prosper. Asaph wants health. Asaph wants wealth. Asaph wants prosperity. And covetousness is beginning to build a home in Asaph's heart. As you can almost hear envy whispering in his ear, is following God really worth it? Is he really that good? All you get for your trouble, Asaph, is pain and heartache, while those who renounce God grow wealthier and more comfortable. God is withholding good from you, Asaph. Now, have you ever heard this voice? As we seek to honor the Lord, perhaps you've sought to honor the Lord in your parenting, and after another temper tantrum, you hear whisper, is this really worth it? Is all my effort actually doing anything good? Would it not be better to just raise my children like the world and allow them to do whatever it is that they please? Or perhaps working hard at your job, striving with Christ-like integrity, just to see people with no integrity promoted over you. And that feeling arises put to words, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. We are not the first ones to hear such whispering, and neither was Asaph. If you listen close, you can hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden in this text. God provides an entire garden for Adam and Eve, all of the provision that they would ever need in a lush and beautiful setting. But he withholds one thing. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, lest on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Satan enters the picture. Satan shifts Adam and Eve's gaze away from the bountiful provision of God and narrows it on the one thing that they cannot have. And then Satan calls God's word and God's goodness into question. Satan says, you shall surely not die. God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. Satan whispering, God is a liar. He is withholding something good from you. Now you see, Satan does not have new tricks. He is trying to draw our eyes away from God. He is trying to foster a sense of distrust of God's word in our heart and ultimately so that we move away from and reject God outright. And is this not the same farce that's being run on Asaph? Asaph is being tempted to view God's goodness as worthlessness and the worthlessness of the world as goodness. That is the whispering of Satan. And now imagine this. Asaph was writing before the age of the Instagram influencer, Jay Leno's Garage and MTV Cribs. How do you think knowing Snoop Dogg's living situation would have changed this song? Everywhere we look today, the world is holding forth a conception of the good life for us. Each of these conceptions holds out a vision of the way things ought to be, and each of these centralizes me, my self-satisfaction, and my lived experience as the road to true happiness. As it is being presented in our psalm, this lifestyle is dripping with pride. It's dripping with self-exaltation. And this vision has no room for God because at the heart of this vision, friend, we are God. 
The whole universe centered on us and our desires and our needs. This is the language of the world. And this is exactly where Asaph goes. Focus with me on verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Can you imagine the, this notion that someone is so boastful that their tongue is personified as a person declaring their glory on the midst of the earth? That's the arrogance, the hubris that we're beholding here. And from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the wicked have set their mouths against heaven while they, the world is filled with the praise of their own glory. And this bandwagon is so beautiful, the, the image is so compelling that even the Israelites begin to jump on it. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These Israelites embrace the whisper. They listen, it sinks down deep, and it justifies their actions in rejecting God himself. The Israelites were taught that God is ever-present. The Israelites were taught that God is all-knowing, and yet they belittle God in order to justify their pursuit of the goodness of the world. The speech of the Israelites reveals a heart that is consumed by worldly concerns. Christian, it behooves us to pay attention to our tongue. A tongue that is far from the Lord reveals a heart that is too. And those Israelites who gave vent to their envy have become parrots of the world, and the result is that they have rejected God and denied the faith. And Asaph feels this pull. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. We began this psalm with the declaration of God's goodness. Just 13 verses later, Asaph is tempted to declare that following God and pursuing righteous is utterly worthless and utterly vain. And this is important for us because it may seem like covetousness. Like a sin of the heart is a small thing. You know, it's certainly nothing like murder or, or something like that. But Asaph is illustrating James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, sin has an aim. Sin has a goal. It wants to bring everything to destruction, including you and me. That covetousness in your heart it is not inert. It is not lifeless. It is actively seeking to destroy you. Our sin wants to cut us off from the goodness and the glory and the grace of God. It wants to cut us off from true joy, true peace, and true love. Our sin, at the root of it, wants to cast us headlong into hell. But thanks be to God that this is not where our psalm ends, right? Because God and not sin has the final word in the life of the Christian. God faithfully corrects Asaph. And in a moment of clarity, Asaph realizes his insanity. Look with me at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
Asaph wisely restrains his tongue, knowing that making verses 13 and 14 his personal declaration would have had disastrous consequences. If this psalm had ended at 13 and 14, Asaph would have been leaving the faith and a generation of Israelites would have been betrayed as they saw a, a figure, a leading figure in the nation of Israel renounce his profession of faith. Asaph would be rejecting God. He would be walking away from the life that had been handed to him and in so doing, he would have led many Israelites astray. Instead, Asaph recognizes Something is wrong. Something's wrong in my thinking. And in humility, Asaph, he, he seeks the Lord. He seeks help from God himself. Asaph was tempted to abandon the goodness of God, and yet it is the goodness of God that restores him, which leads to the main point this morning. God's goodness is the antidote for our covetousness. God's goodness is the antidote for our covetousness. Asaph is deeply troubled and on the brink. He sees the weight of his sin. He sees the cost that pursuing his sin will exact, yet he knows the truth. And where does Asaph turn? He turns to the sanctuary to seek insight from God himself. Even though Asaph is sin-ridden and calling God's character into question, he recognizes the only one who can offer him help is that very God. And so Asaph turns to the sanctuary because God's goodness is beheld in the sanctuary. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Understanding why things are the way they are and confronting our own sin and unbelief is a wearisome task. This is not something that we can do on our own by just trying harder. This is not something that we can find the, the antidote for in some podcast. We need to let Asaph serve as a model for us and answer this. When the battle with sin and unbelief rage hot, where do we seek good? What do you look for either to ease your struggle or to distract you from reality? Asaph does not seek to escape reality. He doesn't binge watch Netflix or seek the assistance of his self-help guru. But where do we turn when things are hard? Is there anything that you would turn to in order to escape reality? Not Asaph. Asaph runs to the sanctuary where God's goodness is beheld. And this is an example to us. When the struggle rages hard, when we are weighed down by sin and trial and difficult circumstances, when we feel like we are on the brink, the only place that we will find true and lasting satisfaction is in God himself found in the sanctuary. But Christian, where do we find the sanctuary? In Asaph's case, the sanctuary is the temple. Asaph would have gone into the temple to see the, the animals being sacrificed, to have the knowledge of his sins being forgiven. He would have beheld the glory of God in the beauty of that place. 
The temple is where the Israelites went to see God's glory and to behold God's presence. But we don't have a temple today, do we? So how do we follow Asaph's example in this? As the temple is carried from the Old Testament into the New, it is revealed that the temple ultimately points us to the glory of God that would be revealed in the incarnation of God's eternal Son. When the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us, the fullness of God's glory and presence was revealed in Him. Jesus Christ is the true temple. He is the very presence and glory of God. So as we think about approaching the sanctuary of God, we don't think of a physical sanctuary, but first we approach God through Jesus Christ. When you are caught in the midst of sin and bitterness, Christian, we must turn to Jesus. There is nothing that will center you on the goodness of God more than contemplating the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus Christ that was required to achieve your forgiveness and righteous standing before a holy God. Now think of all those things that the world seeks to offer you. All of those things which would tempt you away from God, can any of them offer you true forgiveness? Which of those promises holds forth the hope of eternal glory? Which of those promises can save you even from the reality of death? And the answer is none of them. It doesn't matter how much money, how many cars, how big your house is. None of those things can save you from the reality that we will all face, which is that we will die and stand before the Lord. But Christ alone holds forth forgiveness. Christ alone offers you the promise of eternal life, eternal joy, and true satisfaction in the presence of God. Nothing highlights the goodness and the mercy of God like contemplating the hope of our inheritance in Christ's victorious resurrection and triumph over death. When we cannot see the goodness of God, we have nowhere better to turn, nowhere to turn but to our gracious Lord Jesus Christ. But this leads us to a second way that we can follow Asaph's example. Namely, brothers and sisters, that we turn to the body of Christ, gathering together as the church. Paul uses temple imagery in several places to describe the church, but let's just look at one. So then, this is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Faith Community Church, you as the body of Christ are currently being built together by the power of the Holy Spirit into the temple of God. The Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets and the apostles is currently speaking and building his church together through the words of the prophets and the apostles. As we sit under the preaching of the word, as we sing praises to our glorious Lord, as we partake in the ordinances of the church, and as we fellowship together with one another, God's goodness is being displayed. 
And through these means of grace, the Lord reorients us. He checks our insanity so that we may see him rightly and in seeing him that we may see reality. As we gather, brothers and sisters, we remind one another of the goodness of God. And the Bible says that we need that so that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need your encouragement to, to pursue a faithful life in Christ. And brothers and sisters, you need one another's encouragement to do the same. But friends, what level of priority is gathering for public worship for you? In terms of how you structure your week, is, is Sunday a high priority or is Sunday something that can be skirted or jetted if there's something seemingly more pressing or more important? Now, if I were to ask you sort of a ridiculous question, if you were to see a severed limb on the ground, would you assume that there is life in that limb? No, right? The members of the body only have vitality as they are connected to the body. And brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. We are members of Christ, and if we cut ourselves off from the church, all we can expect is that we wither. Because God has given us one another in this fight against sin and in this fight against unbelief. And the sanctuary, the temple, the church, and in the person of Christ himself is where the power of sin is broken for Asaph. And we will find the same. In the sanctuary that is in Christ and in his church, we will see the goodness of God and we will be reoriented to live in light of that reality. For Asaph, that meant being convicted of his short-sightedness and seeing the goodness of God in God's providence. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as fa phantoms. Notice, at the outset, Asaph feels like he's the one on slippery rocks about to lose his footing. But as he enters the sanctuary, Asaph realizes that he has been on solid ground this whole time and that it is the wicked who are on slippery places who are about to stumble and to fall. And how often, brothers and sisters, as we watch the news, as we see what's going on around us, does it feel like we're on, on, on slippery slopes? But the opposite is true. As we stand on the promises of Christ, as we stand on the word of God, it is we who are on solid ground and the world around us that is on slippery slopes. And we can trust God's promise that, that we, he will hold us fast. He will keep us as everything seems to turn to chaos around us. You see, God is a righteous judge. And this whole world is directed toward his ultimate purposes. God is not blind, nor is God dumb, nor is God intimidated by the wealthy or the rulers of this earth. God's righteousness is perfect. God's sovereignty is universal, and God's power is unmatched. The truth of the matter is it is the wicked who are truly living their best life now. For those who renounce Jesus Christ, this is is as good as it gets. For we know that both believer and unbeliever will all face the same reality, namely death. 
and that when we face death, we will all stand before the same judge, God. The lifestyle of the wicked is like a payday loan, short-term gain, brutal long-term payback. At the end of the day, the lifestyle of the wicked will exact far more than it can ever offer us. And when our hearts are set on envy, it distorts our view of reality and it makes us short-sighted. It focuses us on the here and now. But when we see the goodness of God, when we hear the truths of the words of Scripture, that insanity is broken so that we can rightly discern the way things are around us. Namely, that God is providentially guiding all things and nothing is outside of his power and nothing is outside of his control and nothing is outside of his purpose. Though the wicked seem to, to prosper and we seem to suffer, even that is within God's sovereign plan. Asaph's sin caused him to lose sight of this. Now look at how he describes this in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph was embittered in soul. That is, his soul was sour towards God. He had lost sight of reality, and he felt like God was wronging him. And he describes himself as brutish, as ignorant, like a beast. But notice, where does Asaph locate the source of this problem? He does not locate it in his suffering. He does not locate it in the success of the world. In fact, he doesn't mention his circumstances at all. His heart is ultimately the problem. Asaph's covetousness originated in his own heart. Even though Asaph was facing real difficulty, he never presents himself as the victim of his circumstances. As Pastor Aaron regularly says, our circumstances do not cause our sin, but they reveal it. And these verses highlight that exact reality. Our suffering and difficult circumstances do not cause us to sin, but they certainly, and they certainly do not justify our sinning. Rather, they reveal that latent distrust of God and that latent lack of commitment in Him. And this is their design. Look at how Asaph describes his journey, verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph's situation was not by accident. Just as God had ordained the circumstances of the wicked, so too God ordered the steps of Asaph. As the Heidelberg Catechism beautifully articulates, he, that is God, also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. As I think back over the last year, and as we all think back over the last year, none of our circumstances, none of what occurred is outside of God's control. In fact, every single thing was under God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign purpose. And as I have struggled personally, wishing that things were different, wishing that I had the power to change anything, coveting a change of circumstances, Asaph has helped me to see that in all of those things, I was overlooking God's goodness and God's provi provision and God's providence, and ultimately I was calling God's sovereign purposes into question. 
In fact, brothers and sisters, all of these things that have been taking place have been for our good. They have been for us and for our salvation, ultimately, as God is revealing more of his glory to us. But we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we really believe that salvation in Jesus Christ is our highest good? Do we really believe that the salvation of our soul is more valuable than perfect circumstances or even all of the gold in Fort Knox? Or are we still holding out hope that prosperity or the right spouse or the right job or the right opportunity or the right neighborhood or the right house is going to hold forth something that is ultimately our, our ultimate good? At the root of envy is unbelief and idolatry. It is worshiping something more than God himself. And the only way that we can fight this is through the presence and sustaining power of God himself. God leads us through these trials. God leads us through these difficulties so that we will face this sin and so that we will actually see the sin that is beginning to take up residence in our own hearts. And the beauty, Christian, is that at no point will God abandon you. At no point will he leave you. He is continually with you. He will continue to guide you by his presence and his counsel. If the Lord had abandoned Asaph, this psalm would have ended it at verse 14. But the Lord led Asaph into this trial. And through this trial, the Lord kindly showed Asaph the sin that was residing in his heart. And he showed Asaph with greater clarity than Asaph had ever seen the beauty and the glory and the goodness of having God himself. The glory of God's goodness known in his presence. Turn with me to or look at it 25 through 28. There Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. When everything is stripped away from Asaph in the midst of trial and suffering, Asaph sees reality. That there is nothing in all of creation more desirable or more satisfying than knowing God himself. No amount of success, no amount of money, no amount of fame. As Asaph says, not even good health or life itself compares with knowing God. The same sentiment is articulated for us through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You see, all of these things are the worst things that could possibly happen to us. Indeed, Paul promises that they will if you see verse 36. For your sake, that is, for God's sake, we, the Christians, are, be, are all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It is promised that we are going to face difficulty, that we are going to face tribulation, and yet Paul can declare, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing better in all creation, nothing better in heaven or on earth than being loved by God and being received into his family. Nothing more valuable than knowing that your sins are forgiven and that the righteousness of Christ is yours. There is nothing that compares with experiencing the fullness of joy and peace in communion with our triune God. Friends, I ask you, what does the world offer that can come close to this? The world offers shiny things, but the result of those things will be the wrath of God. And now, if you are with us this morning and you do not know God through Jesus Christ, I urge you, listen to the psalmist in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. As I said earlier, we all die and come before a holy and righteous judge. We will all stand before God and he will lay bare every thought, word, and deed that we have ever had. Everything that we have thought will be laid bare before him. Nothing will be hidden. And on that day, the Bible says that our righteousness will be counted as filthy rags before him. And if you are honest with yourself, you recognize that you have sinned against God in every action, every thought, every word, every deed, because in none of those actions have you prioritized the glory of God or the love of God as your highest end. You recognize that it is against God whom you've sinned, and it is from God that you need to receive forgiveness. But that forgiveness is not free. That forgiveness is not free. It has come at the cost of Jesus Christ. You see, in every way that we sinned, Jesus lived a perfect life, never once sinning, and yet Jesus was crushed. He died a horrible death under the wrath of God to pay for those sins that he did not commit because of his righteousness, because of his wrath-bearing death, you can be forgiven of your sins if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Will you inherit eternal life with Christ or destruction with the world? We gather this morning, not as a congregation of the perfect, but as a congregation of those who know the faithfulness of God to forgive, to redeem, and to sanctify. And so Christians, as we continue on in life, as we continue on, as, as we seek to honor the Lord in all that we do, may our hearts cry be the same as Asaph in verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Please pray with me.